Tune Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M. Or by calling 0141 772 3976. That's 0141 772 3976. This is from The National on Friday the 28th of July, 2023, from the News section. Brian Cox gives his verdict on UFOs after US Senate hearing. This article is written by Andrew Smart. Professor Brian Cox has weighed in on the debate surrounding the existence of extraterrestrial life on Earth as the US Senate held a hearing on the issue. The British scientist described the claims as extraordinary, but said that no extraordinary evidence exists to back them up. This comes as US lawmakers heard first-hand accounts of unidentified flying objects, UFOs, sightings from former members of the US military. The hearing is also exploring if the US government knows anything about the existence of UFOs, and if so, how much. Retired Major David Grouch told Congress that the United States of America is concealing a long-running program to reverse-engineer alien technology and claimed that the government has known about non-human activity since the 1930s. However, the Pentagon denied these claims by Grouch, saying there's been no cover-up. Yesterday, popular British scientist and TV presenter Professor Brian Cox weighed in on the discussion in a post on Twitter. He said, I keep being asked what I make of the UFO thing in Congress yesterday, so here it is. I watched a few clips and saw some people who seemed to believe stuff saying extraordinary things without presenting extraordinary evidence. He added that it would be great if true, saying it would take a bit of the pressure off our civilization." if we weren't the only means within the Milky Way by which the universe understands itself. Sadly, as of today, I still feel that pressure, so can we perhaps focus on not messing up our world, rather than hoping that, to paraphrase Sagan, someone will float down to save us from ourselves. That article was written by Andrew Smart. This is from The National on Friday the 28th of July 2023. From the politics section. Humza Yousaf, I'd reject British citizenship after Scottish independence. This article is written by Zander Eliards. Humza Yousaf would reject his British citizenship and instead choose to take only the citizenship of an independent Scotland. The First Minister told journalists that would probably be his position at a round table with the media after the launch of a new white paper 
dealing with the issue of citizenship after a yes vote. The paper says that British citizens living in Scotland on the Day of Independence would automatically qualify as Scottish citizens and become dual nationals. However, they would also be able to opt out of either one. People would have the choice to either renounce their British citizenship and become only Scottish citizens or reject a Scottish citizenship, keeping only their British passport. Asked if he would retain his British citizenship alongside his new Scottish one, the SNP leader said, I've not thought much about it, but I probably wouldn't, no. I would just have my Scottish citizenship, he added. The First Minister also told reporters that people who moved to Scotland from elsewhere in Britain after a yes vote, but before the day of independence, would be welcome. British citizens who moved to Scotland during this transition period would automatically become Scottish citizens on the day of independence and there would be no plans for a citizenship test akin to the one used in the UK. Yousaf said, I would welcome British citizens who choose to move to Scotland after a yes vote but before independence. We have demographic challenges. We have vacancies in important sectors, public and private, I have to say. And we're already working on trying to attract more people from the UK to Scotland. I think we would welcome that in that transition period in the run-up to Scotland becoming an independent nation. Youssef pointed his time as Health Secretary and a campaign which the government ran trying to attract GPs to Scotland's rural areas from elsewhere in the UK. He added that movement over the border during a transition period, especially by workers in such key sectors, would be welcomed wholeheartedly. That article was written by Zander Eliards. This is from The National on Friday the 28th of July 2023, from the Politics section. Humza Youssef hits back at UK plot to limit Scottish independence spending. This article is written by Zander Eliards. The Scottish Government is very confident it can legally spend money on preparations for independence, Humza Youssef has said. The First Minister also said that Scottish ministers had not had any contact with UK officials who have been tasked with probing his devolved administration spending in reserved areas. The news comes after Simon Case, the UK's most senior civil servant, told peers on the Lord's Constitution Committee that he had officials working with Tory ministers looking at the Scottish Government's spending. And Lucy Neville Rolfe, a Cabinet Office Minister, told the House of Lords that the UK Government would consider what sanctions could be laid out in the updated Cabinet Manual for devolved administrations whose work strays into reserved areas. Speaking at the launch of a Scottish Government white paper on citizenship after independence, one of the pieces of work which is under fire from a unionist opposition who label it a blatant misuse of public money, Youssef said his government was very confident in the legality of its actions. We are very confident in the position that we have, the legality and the legal position which we have, 
to bring forward these papers, publish these papers, and do the work that we're doing, Youssef said. You will have seen some comments from academics in the last 48 hours, who are experts in the issue of devolution, saying that this is very much something that is within the gift of the Scottish Government. Independence Minister Jamie Hepburn, who was also present at the launch, added, On that point, Robert Hazel, who was the co-author of the Cabinet Manual, which this has all been predicated on in terms of being looked at, said yesterday that it would be odd that the democratic mandate which we have would be trodden across. It would be odd that civil servants aren't able to support the Scottish Government in the democratic mandate they have to pursue independence. Professor Hazel was the founder and first director of the Constitution Unit at University College London, UCL. His opinion came on top of another from Scottish Government law officers. In an opinion from December 2019 and referenced in a Freedom of Information release from 2020, the unnamed law officers said that Scottish ministers can lawfully undertake policy development work preparing proposals for independence and in calling for a transfer of power. In the wake of such expert opinion, Yousaf told journalists at the launch of the Independence White Paper that there were no concerns about the legality of such work. He went on, We're very confident in our basis for producing these papers, as are the civil servants that have done an excellent amount of work on producing these papers. What I would say to our opposition in particular is, I think it speaks volumes that you're trying to shut down our positive case for independence. Where's your positive case for maintaining the union? If you truly believe there's a case to be made, a positive case to be made for your proposition, then make it. He added, they know that we have a winning argument here, so they're trying to shut it down instead of making their own case. The Scottish Conservatives have raged against the production of such white papers, with the group's constitution spokesperson, Donald Cameron, claiming People across Scotland will be appalled that Humzar Yousaf is focusing on yet another self-indulgent paper touting independence. It is the wrong priority at the worst possible time. This paper is not only a blatant misuse of public money and resources by the SNP, but it also demonstrates how out of touch they are with the public. That article was written by Zander Eliards. This is from The National on Friday the 28th of July 2023. From the News section. Scotland helps UK produce record level of renewable electricity. This article is written by Gregor Young. Renewables generated a record annual amount of electricity for the UK in 2022, new government figures show. The Department for Energy, Security and Net Zero, DESNZ, published statistics on last year's electricity production, which includes the proportion and amount generated by renewables. According to 2020 figures from the UK government, Scotland provides around a quarter of the UK's overall renewable output. The UK government classes wind, solar, bioenergy, hydroelectric energy, heat pumps and electricity gained from burning waste, such as paper, plastic,
plastic and products made from wood, or as renewable energy. These forms of energy provided 135 terawatt-hours (TWh) of electricity in 2022, beating the previous record of 134.3 TWh set in 2020. This meant renewables made up to 41.5% of the UK's electricity in 2022, up from 39.6% in 2021, according to the figures. While this year marked the record amount of electricity generated by renewables, the record for the highest proportion remains at 42.7% in 2020, which also marked the first time they outperformed fossil fuels. The proportion of electricity generated by fossil fuels in 2022 was also lower than renewables at 40.8%, or 132.8 terawatt-hours. DESNZ's Digest of UK Energy Statistics said the record amount generated by renewables in 2022 is due to high output from wind and solar generators, substantial increases in wind generation capacity and more favourable weather conditions. Wind remains the UK's biggest source of clean power, generating a record of 24.7% of the UK's electricity, that's 80.3 terawatt-hours, beating the previous record of 24.0 in 2020, 75.4 terawatt-hours. It also provided 59.5% of all renewable electricity. Meanwhile, 13.8% of the UK's electricity was produced by offshore wind, a record 45.0 terawatt-hours, and 10.8% from onshore wind, a record 35.2 terawatt-hours. The report says offshore wind alone generated more than total renewable generation 10 years ago. Renewable UK's chief executive, Dan McGrail, said, It's great to see renewables setting new records across the board, generating record amounts of clean power last year making us less dependent on expensive gas imports at the very time when fossil fuel costs rocketed up, causing an energy crisis which we're still grappling with. Government and industry must pull out all the stops to increase our energy security by ensuring that new, vital clean energy projects can be built faster, onshore and offshore. This is not the time to waver or row back on policies which accelerate the energy transition. On the contrary, we need more of a focus from government on ensuring that we continue to unlock investment in renewables and that the UK secures a maximum amount of new jobs and manufacturing investment which could flow from the billions of pounds of private investment which our sector brings. Debate continues over whether certain forms of bioenergy and electricity gain from burning waste should be considered renewable. That article was written by Gregor Young. This is from The National on Friday the 28th of July 2023. From the news section. Ukrainian MP backs munitions depot workers set to strike. This article is written by Craig Patton. 
A Ukrainian MP has backed workers at a Scottish munitions depot who are set to strike next month. Staff at the Defence Equipment and Support, DES, site in Beath, North Ayrshire, will walk out between August the 4th and 7th, after 93% of them backed strike action. According to the GMB union, staff are split into two categories, craft and non-craft workers, with the former tasked with assembling weapons and the latter transporting them within the site and loading shipments. Retention bonuses, the union claims, are paid to managers and craft staff, but non-craft workers, who earn less than £21,000 per year, do not receive the payments, meaning the pay gap between the two classifications has tripled to £18,000. Strikes, like the two-day walkout earlier this month, will impact on the supply of storm shadow and brimstone missiles to Ukraine in its fight against the Russian invasion. But a high-profile MP from the country has backed the workers at the depot. Lysia Vasilenko, who decided to train in the use of guns to defend Ukraine and made a number of appearances in the UK to drum up support, said, The work being done by GMB Scotland members at Beath could not be more important to Ukraine as we fight for our freedom. I thank every one of them for their efforts, support their fight for fairness and urge managers to quickly negotiate an end to this dispute and ensure their crucial work continues. Her intervention comes after Ukrainian trade unions sent their support to the workers at the depot earlier this week. GMB Scotland organiser Chris Kennedy said, It is regrettable that MPs and trade unions in Ukraine have a far better understanding and greater appreciation of the importance of our workers' role, rather than their managers. Their support is greatly appreciated, and we would urge the Ministry of Defence to properly understand the implications of this dispute and negotiate to end what has become a two-tier system. This is the first strike at DAS and management should listen to the voices being raised in support of our members, from Scotland to Ukraine, and negotiate a settlement that treats workers with fairness and respect. A Ministry of Defence spokesperson said, The strikes will have no effect on our ability to provide capability to Ukraine. Pre-planned contingency measures are being implemented at DMB to ensure the continued operation of the site. We remain open to dialogue with GMB to discuss the issues raised and work towards resolving them. That article was written by Craig Patton. From the National, Monday the 31st of July 2023, from the comment section. The golden rule the bankers forgot when they targeted Farage. By columnist George Caravan. Why is there now such an almighty fuss over banks mistreating their customers? In this latest case, banks are cancelling accounts, including, notoriously, that of Nigel Farage. As a result, the CEO of NatWest, Dame Alison Rose, has lost her job. But what does it actually take for bankers to suffer some retribution for their high-handed behaviour? The answer is simple, dear reader. It is only when the bankers are stupid enough to let their actions affect the political class, as opposed to ordinary mortals, that anything happens by way of justice. 
When the rest of us loans called in abruptly and our painfully acquired businesses sold from under us, the regulatory authorities do nothing. When banks forge documentation to allow them to impose outrageous new charges, the regulator says it's impossible to prove, despite thousands of cases on record. And when criminally corrupt bank officials defraud business customers, company boards have been known to cover up the egregious behaviour in order to protect share prices. Again, both regulators and the fraud authorities have been sloth-like to respond. Yet, woe betide a bank that forgets the golden rule, don't upset the politicians personally. How did NatWest and its Coots subsidiary get things so wrong? Answer? Arrogance. Sheer bloody arrogance. First up, some background. When I was an SNP MP, I was chair of the all-party group on fair business banking. Essentially, it existed to champion the cause of the small business customers of the big banks, who had effectively screwed their customers out of. We estimated some £100 billion worth of assets in the period after the 2008 financial crash. Yes, that's £100 billion. The result was the wrecking of the small business sector, slow economic growth and the plummeting of productivity levels. Who was left to invest? This raid in the pockets of tens of thousands of hard-working folk was an outrage. Not a few of those affected took their own lives. Yet, despite appeals to the regulators, including Andrew Bailey, since elevated to run the Bank of England, nothing happened. I managed to secure the odd debate in Parliament, at which MPs of all parties trotted out case history after case history, but nobody in government listened. I remonstrated with two different chancellors of the Exchequer. I even made an accusatory film with the great documentary maker Samir Mihanovic, Spank the Banker, available in Vimeo. But the powers that be were more concerned with protecting the banks than providing justice. Your reaction may be to argue that, especially in rocky economic times, small businesses always go bust and banks will, of necessity, recoup their losses. But that is not what happened here. In the run-up to 2008, banks borrowed from each other wholesale in order to gamble in the so-called derivatives market. This was not ordinary banking, taking deposits and lending to businesses to create jobs. It was insane risk-taking prompted by a lust for personal bonuses. When the whole house of cards collapsed, the Western banking system trembled in the brink and had to be bailed out. RBS and HBOS Lloyds all had to be nationalised. Precisely in order to rebuild their profits and pay off their new debts, the banks, the banks embarked on a strategy of squeezing their small business customers. True, the crisis in the banking sector had led to a temporary global economic downturn. That obviously created short-term problems for, even for perfectly viable small businesses. But, rather than help those businesses weather the storm, the big banks used the occasion to force small firms into liquidation deliberately in order to seize their assets. RBS even had a special unit, the Global Restructuring Group, dedicating to assist to asset stripping its small business customers. Later, the Financial Conduct Authority produced a report into the GRG scandal, but declined to take any mitigating action because ordering compensation would have destroyed RBS itself. Too big to fail, as they say, but also too big to prosecute. The scandal at H. Boss Lloyds was even bigger. 
The unit in charge of small businesses, lending, went rogue, with one senior manager going to jail. Customers were inveigled in taking loans, very complicated loans, that pushed the small businesses into technical bankruptcy. The distressed assets were then sold off below value to other members of the gang. Concerns were raised by a whistleblower to the H. Bodge Lloyd's senior management and board, and the all-party group was forced to ask what senior management in the board knew and when. Had it not been for the dogged pursuit of the criminals by elected Thames Valley Police Commissioner Anthony Stansfeld, the affair would never have come to light. Some financial compensation was eventually offered by Lloyd's, but too little, too grudgingly, and not till many lives had been destroyed. The restitution of the banking sector after the 2008 meltdown was based on robbing blind Britain's small business sector. This goes a long way to explaining the UK's poor economic performance since then, and the suppressed anger that led to Brexit. As for the true culprits, few suffered. RBS changed its name to NatWest in the hope of shedding its reputation for taking bad risks, gambling with other folks' money, and using its small business customers as a cash cow. Note, there was also a deliberate anti-Scottish element to this rebranding, but the bank never changed its commercial spots. It is therefore no surprise that it has been caught out again in the Farage affair. In passing, when it left Parliament, RBS, as was, quietly offered to fund the work of the all-party group in fair banking. I wonder why? Now, Farage has seen an opportunity to rebrand himself as the populist champion of those who have suffered at the hands of the banking system. I would not trust Mr Farage as far as I could throw him, but there is a lesson here. In the aftermath of the 2008 banking crisis, the Tory government introduced a series of legal changes to force the banks to be more responsible. They also changed the law to make individual bankers legally accountable for future bad behaviour. Subsequently, much of these reforms have been quietly repealed, One of the bits of reform still in the books involves banks having to take tighter precautions against money laundering by criminals, terrorists and billionaires attempting to avoid taxation. Note that the legislation is effective. In 2021, NatWest was fined £265 million for failing to stop money laundering through its accounts. Then CEO Rose parroted in response, NatWest takes its responsibility to prevent and detect financial crime extremely seriously. But all it did was to debank anyone that thought might embarrass the bank further, for example Nigel Farage, rather than actually ensure that future money laundering was impossible. And that was a comment piece by George Caravan. From The National Monday the 31st of July 2023, from the comment section. Words of sympathy will not win Sarwar votes. By Kirsty Strickland. The furore caused by Keir Starmer's cowardly U-turn on scrapping the two-child limit on universal credit and tax credits is shaping up to be a key issue in the next election. In his wildest dreams, Boris Johnson could never have imagined that Starmer would be so, so fully embraced and embody the accusations of flip-flopping that the former Prime Minister often threw at him. Politics is all about priorities. In refusing to commit to reversing the Tories' inhumane assault on low-income families 
Starmer has signalled that reducing child poverty is way down his priority list. At the end of last week, the First Minister hit out at Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar, saying he had been posted missing during the controversy surrounding Starmer's decision. People across Scotland are struggling with the cost of living right now and they deserve to know that politicians will do everything they can to help them through tough times, Hamza Yousaf said. I can understand why he is desperate to avoid scrutiny, but he must be upfront with people of Scotland and explain why his party is committing to retain a policy that will keep up to 20,000 children in poverty. It has long been known that the Labour in Scotland are just a branch office of the Westminster Party, but never before has their powerlessness been so apparent or on such an important issue. Scottish Labour leader has been the main beneficiary of the SNP's recent troubles. A Sunday Times poll last month suggested his party could win more seats than the SNP at the next general election. There is undeniable strategic benefit in flying under the radar when your main opponents are in turmoil. Nobody has heard much from Sarwar during this time, beyond a few solemn on-camera statements and soundbites about why Scotland needs a change of direction. It's not hard to play the role of the statesman when all that's required of you is to provide commentary on how bad the other guys are. But that doesn't quite cut it during an election campaign. Scottish Labour seem to believe that a few actually carefully crafted statements that put distance between their own policy and that of the head office would be enough to persuade voters their intentions, if not their actions, at least are good. On the two-child cap, Sarwan insists Scottish Labour policy has not changed. He says his party continues to oppose the two-child limit and continue to believe that it needs to change. I'm sure the 1.5 million children across the UK who have been affected by the cap will find it immensely reassuring that Scottish Labour believe the policy that they will co- that they will co-sign under a UK Labour government isn't the right one. Fear not, Hungarian children. Sarwar has pledged to press an incoming UK Labour government to move as fast as it can with our fiscal rules within our fiscal rules to remove this heinous policy. Do you know what would be better than simply promising to press, nudge, gently persuade your colleagues into reversing a policy that has been described as poverty producing by child poverty experts? Pledging that Scottish Labour MPs would use their votes in the House of Commons to force a change of direction. Starmer has promised a review of universal credit if he becomes Prime Minister. Any policy changes that are brought forward as a result of it will be put to the House for its approval. If, as projected, Scottish Labour win a chunk of seats at the next election, that should, in theory at least, give them leverage. Eurosceptic backbenchers maximised their influence during the Brexit process by voting as a bloc. Scottish Labour's opposition to the two-child cap is more than just political posturing. They need to use any power that is given to them by voters to change it. And if their goal is truly to change Starmer's mind, then why not put pressure on him now and announce their intentions before the Labour manifesto for the general election is even finalised? Despite his party's improved poll ratings, Sarwar is in for a tough time during the campaign. He can't go to voters with a prospectus that is wildly different from UK Labour's, not least because he has no powers to unilaterally implement anything the boss doesn't agree with. Either he signs up to the Tory-like vision of the future that Starmer looks increasingly keen on, or he veers off in an entirely different direction, 
with pretended manifesto full of pledges that will never see the light of day. The cost of living crisis is exacerbating existing widespread hardship and inequality across the UK. Under the Conservatives, low-income households have been pushed to breaking point. If Scottish Labour can't offer struggling voters anything beyond murmured words of sympathy, then they may find a recent showing in the polls provides to be a temporary as a policy commitment from Starmer. And that was a comment piece by Kirsty Strickland. From the National, Monday the 33rd of July 2023, from the news section, exclusive, crisis of confidence in UK, poll reveals Scottish pessimism, article by Xander Eliards. Almost two-thirds of Scots think the next five years of life in the UK will be worse than the previous five, with just one in ten expecting things to improve, a damning new poll has suggested. Commissioned by Alba, the polling found that 63.8% of Scottish adults expect the next five years of life in the UK to be worse than the five years up to now. In contrast, just 12% of people said they expected things to be better over the same period. Around 1 in 4 24.2% said they thought things would remain much the same. Alba said the poll, run by Find Out Now between July the 6th and 14th, was not good reading for anyone hoping to present a positive vision for the future of Scotland as part of the UK. They highlighted how the previous five years had seen both Brexit and a pandemic, emphasising the pessimism among Scottish voters. Subsamples from the representative polling show that optimism is greater among those who voted Leave than those who voted Remain in the Brexit referendum of 2016, although the majority of both groups, 55% and 69% respectively, expect things to worsen in the coming years. Optimism is also greater among Conservative voters than SNP voters, the subsamples suggest, with Labour and Lib Dem supporters falling somewhere in the middle. Among those who voted Tory in 2019, 50.9% expect things to get worse in the next five years, while 19.6% expect them to improve. For the SNP, this was 74.2% against 7.9%. Chris McKelney, Alba's General Secretary, said the polling reflected an underlying crisis of confidence in the future of the UK. He called for the Yes Movement to view the public's pessimism as an opportunity to campaign for independence highlighting how his party leader, Alex Salmond, would soon lead the party's 60th pro-independence public meeting of the past year. McKelney said, This poll is grim reading for the Labour Party and the Tories. Both are vying to be the next UK government, but even their own voters think that the next five years, living in Scotland, as part of the UK, will be worse than the last five years. And that was a period that we left the EU, had a global pandemic, and the Tories crashed the economy. This underlying crisis of confidence in the future of the UK should be an opportunity for the independence movement. By offering a positive vision of what an independent Scotland can achieve, we can give people the facts and the confidence to choose the hope of an independent Scotland over the fear of just how bad the future will get if we stay part of the UK. The Find Out Now polling used a representative sample of 1,005 Scottish adults. The question... Do you believe that the next five years living in the UK will be better or worse than the last five years living in the UK? 
was this between July the 6th and 14th, 2023? And that article is by Xander Eliards. From The National, Monday the 31st of July 2023, from the news section, Falkirk Crash, Murder Inquiry Launched After Woman Dies, an article first published on the 30th of July by James Walker. Police have launched a murder investigation following a fatal crash in Falkirk, saying it is imperative to find the occupants of a black Mercedes involved in the incident. A 27-year-old woman who was driving a silver Vauxhall Vectra died in the crash in the B902 New Carron Road at about 6.10pm on Saturday. Two other people, a 22-year-old man who was her passenger and a 39-year-old man driving a black Volkswagen Tiguan were hurt in the crash. Police say the collision happened after a Mercedes C-Class pursued the Vauxhall onto New Carron Road. Before this, there had been an altercation involving the occupants of the two vehicles on Foundry Street in Falkirk. Those in the Mercedes fled the sleet scene after the crash. Detective Inspector Hazel Reed said, Our thoughts are with the family and friends of the woman at this very difficult time. We have a dedicated team of officers working on this investigation and extensive inquiries are ongoing at this time. It is imperative we trace the occupants of the black Mercedes who fled the scene. We believe this vehicle has pursued the Vauxhall in a dangerous fashion, resulting in a crash with the Volkswagen Tiguan. She continued, Officers are gathering CCTV footage from the surrounding area and door-to-door inquiries are also being carried out. I am keen to speak to anyone with any private CCTV, Tashcam or any other footage they think would assist the inquiry. We have a continued police presence in the area and anyone with any concerns can approach these officers. It is vital that we find out more about what has happened as soon as we can and I would urge anyone with information to contact us as soon as possible, no matter how insignificant it might seem. And that report was by James Walker. From the National, Monday the 31st of July 2023, from the news section, exclusive, MP Alan Smith marries long-term boyfriend Jonathan Ramsey, an article first published on the 30th of July and written by James Walker. SNP MP for Stirling, Alan Smith, has married his long-term boyfriend, secondary school teacher Jonathan Ramsey, in Stirling on Sunday. The couple tied the knot at Bannockburn House, a historic 17th century mansion which has been brought back to its former glory by community owned by a community-owned restoration project. The ceremony, performed by Sarah Burnside from Agnostic Scotland, involved the traditional hand-fasting of strands of Smith and Ramsey tartans and a quake ceremony blending two whiskies. The couple met in 2013 and live in Stirling together. Alan said, we're so happy we were able to marry, and at a venue we're both really fond of. The volunteers at Bannockburn House have done us proud, as have the local suppliers we work with, planning our day. When we met, equal marriage was not legal in Scotland. It seems crazy to think that now. We're so glad we were able to have so many friends and family with us for our special day, and look forward to the next phase of our life together. And that report was by James Walker. 
From the National, Monday the 31st of July 2023, from the Culture Section, Review, Gemma McLaughlin, Dear's Promising Friendship Turned to Something Darker, an article first published on the 30th of July by Gemma E. McLaughlin. The After School Crime Club by Hayley Webster, published by Nosy Crow. For children who struggle to fit in and make friends at school, it can be difficult not to wonder what you're doing wrong. The After School Crime Club, coming out on Thursday, is empathetic to this, but does not stop it exploring it, injecting into this familiar loneliness a hope and wisdom that makes it required reading for young people going through a difficult adjustment. In this book, we are guided through the turbulence of trying to connect to family and peers with Webster's engaging and emotionally intelligent prose. Willow's first year of secondary school is fast approaching, but the worry of that change is perhaps the last thing in her mind as her beloved Nana has just passed away. Having always felt like a loner at school, never quite able to properly join in with the friendships of her peers, she had relied on regular visits to her Nana, in which they'd watched old movies, especially musicals. Through this passion, and researching it, Willow settles in the simplistic and peaceful dream of working in a cinema. However, in an effort to widen her options, her mum signs her up for an after-school study group at the local bookshop. At first she's begrudging, however, it is not the studying aspect of this club that will go on to change her whole world and perspective. Among those attending the group, she feels immediately drawn to the mysterious Tay Welding, rumoured to be a rule-breaker, and so, when she's approached by popular girl Marie with the proposition of a secret society of rebels, Willow feels intrigued and included for the first time. Marie begins again to set her challenges, or dares, with a promise that will solidify a friendship with Tay and the rest of the group. As these start off small, Willow is prepared to try to break a couple of rules. As she's never felt a part of anything, there's something thrilling about the idea of having friends to laugh and she experiences with, but as the challenges go on, it seems to be something else entirely. Willow's conscience is tested as she's asked to steal things of more significance and, with her Nana's voice in the back of her mind, she begins to realise that, even though she's never had many, this is not what real friendship feels like. As the story progresses, so does the guilt Willow feels for her actions and the pressure from Marie to do more. There is a true discomfort the reader will feel along with this protagonist as her vulnerability and loss are exploited. This, However, it's absolutely necessary to capture what it is to be covertly bullied, pushed into a corner by those who pretend to be friends. This is a novel not only for children who have gone through something similar, but for anyone going through a major change and looking to find their place with the right people. Hope and real friendship prevail, as Webster guides a path out of peer pressure. The After School Crime Club by Hayley Webster, published by Nosy Crow and reviewed by Jenna E. McLaughlin. From the National, Monday the 31st of July 2023, from the Culture Section, an article first published on the 29th of July by Mark Brown. The shows that might raise heckles during the Edinburgh festivals. Every Edinburgh festival season has at least one cause celebre, which is exactly as it should be. Taken together, the Edinburgh International Festival, 
Festival Fringe and their sibling festivals are the biggest showcase of the arts on the planet. As such, they will be failing in one of the arts' most crucial functions, as in gritting the social oyster if they didn't generate a bit of controversy. The thing about controversy, however, is it's very hard to predict where it will pop up, often it emerges where you least expect it. Meanwhile, those you might have thought would cause a storm of consternation sailed through the three and a half weeks of the festival in the calmest serenity. There may or may not be a show in Edinburgh next month that leads to the outbreak of cultural warfare between the Daily Mail reading Outrage of Tunbridge Wells and those the ever-delightful Suella Bravman dubbed the Tofu-eating Mokinati. However, there are bound to be artworks that, at the very least, lead to uncomfortably overturned expectations and may even maybe even a bit of artistic argy-bargy. The Scotland-based Japanese theatre maker Mamoru Iriguchi is a fantastically audacious, audacious artist. His show Sex Education Explorers, SEX, for example, didn't so much walk as, da- as dance with stunning alacrity into territory, not least the history and construction of human gender, where proverbial angels fear to tread. His offering at this year's Fringe Festival has the abundant title What You See When Your Eyes Are Closed slash What You Don't See When Your Eyes Are Open Summer Hall, August the 22nd to the 27th A piece about the complex relationship between performer and audience member it presents a challenge to audiences both in terms of their ideas about theatrical performance and their personal comfort zones The show has two characters Eriguchi himself and Cyclops a furry monster he sees the world two-dimensionally through his single eye, interact and invite the involvement of those audience members who wish to do so. This process explores the experience of seeing and being seen in the performance space. The show comes with a detailed warning, highlighting on the Summer Hall Venues website in alarmingly bright orange, alerting potential audience members to follow aspects of the production, Audience participation, nudity, scenes of violence, audience invited, not required to move around the space and speak slash sing with slash for the performance. If sensitive to light, bring sunglasses as a projector may shine directly onto faces. However, we are reassured that the nudity is brief and occurs in a non-sexual context. Presumably, Iriguchi hopes both that this injunction will ward off the theatre-goaters who might find the show a little too rich for their blood, and, paradoxically, entice those seeking a bit of theatrical adventure. However, in these days of often paper-thin sensibilities, where this experiment might lead is anyone's guess. Another potential bone of contention is when the apple ripens, people are housing at 65, City Arts Centre, until October the 1st. This major retrospective of the work of the famous Scottish painter opened in late May, but it will undoubtedly receive a spike in number of visitors during the festivals in August. Here I am, open to the accusation of being controversial myself, but I can't help note that many art lovers who are encouraging Housen's work in depth for the first time notice how deeply problematic it is. Housen was one of the group of the young, figurative painters, including Ken Curry, Adrian Vizvanesky, Stephen Conroy and the late Stephen Campbell, who emerged in the 1980s under the collective title of the New Glasgow Boys, 
successors than Sobriquet suggested to the original Glasgow boys who had pioneered modernism in Scottish painting almost a century before. Housing's technical brilliance is absolutely without question. However, there is, in his work, a generalised misanthropy and, more specifically, a nasty characterisation of working class men that has always left me cold. An early painting of a football match, titled Just Another Bloody Saturday, 1987, in which bull-headed footballers clash in the field where a number of fans in the bovine crowd give Nazi salutes, pointed towards what would become a reductive, fixed idea at the heart of Housen's work. The most difficult interview I have ever conducted as an arts journalist was in 2002 with the famous writer and actor Stephen Berkhoff. The man's arrogance and misogyny were, at least, equal to his formidable talents. Interestingly, History Do in London's Docklands, where the interview was conducted, boasted a number of artworks by Housen. One, a typically threatening depiction of Scottish working-class masculinity, exemplified everything I dislike in Housen's work. When I alluded to it, Beckhoff replied it was like a Glaswegian last of the Mohicans, a reference one assumed in the 1992 film described by one critic as a testosterone opera. If the Scottish painters, in my view, highly dubious attitude towards his fellow men in particular and humankind in general isn't controversial enough for you, we'll come back to Edinburgh arguably the most contentious comedian performing in the UK today, namely Jerry Sadovitz. Following his notorious cancellation by Pleasance after one performance during the 2022 Fringe, the Glaswegian comedian returned with a presentation titled defiantly Jerry Sadovitz proudly presents last year's show, Queen's Hall, August 23rd to 25th. Far from a dyed-in-the-wheel reactionary who needs to be hounded from our stages, Sadovitz is, as I have argued in this newspaper before, the closest thing contemporary comedy in the UK has to the late, great American comedy pioneer Lenny Bruce. Like Bruce, Sadovitz is Jewish, a fact that is far from irrelevant when his dark, deliberate, troubling Deeply ironic and fascinatingly complex material is concerned. Sadovich is lauded by the great Arnold Brown, one of the founders of alternative comedy in the 1980s, and a man whose progressive political credentials are beyond doubt. As those lucky enough to get a ticket for one of Sadovich's shows will discover, there is much, including a large dose of self-discovery, to be gained from the white-knuckle ride that is a gig by one of Glasgow's most controversial sons, and that was a culture piece by Mark Brown. From the National, Tuesday, 1st of August, 2023. News section. Scottish Islands see Royal Mail begin electric drone deliveries by Lucy Jackson. Royal Mail have announced the launch of a fully electric drone delivery project in a Scottish island community. The project, in collaboration with Sky Sports Drone Services, is said to be the first of its kind in the UK which can be conducted on a permanent basis under existing regulatory frameworks. The daily service will distribute mail between the three islands in Orkney and is funded by the Department for Transport's Freight Innovation Fund. Letters and parcels will be transported from Royal Mail's Kirkwall Delivery Office to Stromness, where Sky Sports Drone Services will conduct drone deliveries to Royal Mail staff on Grainsey and Hoy. Postal workers will then carry out their usual island delivery routes from these locations. 
The project will initially run for three months with the intent to extend it in future. The drone which will be used to deliver mail, a Speedbird Aero DLV-2 aircraft, can carry weights of up to six kilograms. The project is expected to have a significant impact on distribution services in the area, which are often impacted by the geography and climate of Orkney. For example, the ferry service by which some mail is delivered can often be delayed or cancelled as a result of poor weather. Project organisers claim that the launch of their June delivery system will shorten delivery times for some of the communities in Orkney and improve rural access. In addition to emission savings, Raw Mail also claims that the new delivery service will significantly improve safety for postal workers, minimising the risk workers face delivering between marinas and ports. Chris Paxton, head of drone trials at Royal Mail, said, We're proud to be working with Sky Sports to deliver via drone to some of the more remote communities that we serve in the UK. Using a fully electric drone supports Royal Mail's continued drive to reduce emissions associated with our operations, whilst connecting the island communities that we deliver to. That article was by Lucy Jackson. From the Herald, Tuesday, 1st of August, 2023, news section. Child with life-changing injuries after being electrocuted. By Rebecca Newlands, digital journalist. A child is in hospital with life-changing injuries after being electrocuted on a railway line. The 14-year-old climbed under the top of a stationary freight train, reached out and touched the overhead line. The incident occurred on Saturday night between Carfin and Holytown. He remains in hospital in a serious condition. A second incident occurred at Murrayfield in Edinburgh on Sunday night when a 17-year-old boy was found lying on a footpath. It was believed he had become electrocuted after getting access to the train tracks and he's also in hospital fighting for his life. Medics also believe his injuries to be life-changing. Transport cops are urging youngsters to be aware of the dangers of the railway after the back-to-back incidents. Detective Chief Inspector Mark Francie said, In just over 24 hours this weekend, two young people have sustained horrific injuries after taking unnecessary risks on the railway. First and foremost, our thoughts are with their loved ones who are being supported by officers. It should be abundantly clear from these two tragic incidents that the railway is not a playground. Modern trains are almost silently reached speeds of 125 miles an hour and the overhead lines are powered by extremely high currents of electricity 24 hours a day, which can kill instantly or result in a catastrophic life-changing injury. With the school holidays upon us, I would urge parents and carers to sit down with their children as soon as possible. Help us to prevent further tragedies by ensuring you know where your children are. Talk to them about the dangers of the railway. Please have these conversations with those in your care and encourage them to stay off the tracks. That article was by Rebecca Newlands. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of August 2023 from the Culture Section. Young Fathers announced two major Glasgow dates on UK tour by Rebecca Newlands. Young Fathers have announced two Glasgow dates as part of a UK tour. The Indie Rockers will visit the city's Barrowlands in a new tour of the ba- off the back of their recently announced North American tour. Consisting of members Aloysius Masakwai, Caius Bancoli and G. Hastings, 
The Edinburgh Trio is known for their electrifying live performances and mixing multiple genres. Now they're bringing their incredible stage presence to the iconic East End venue on October the 23rd and 24th, 2023. Earlier this year, the group released their fourth album, Heavy Heavy, which has been shortlisted for the 2023 Mercury Prize. It is Young Father's second nomination for the award after they won it in 2014 for their debut album, Dead. There will be a pre-sale launch on Tuesday, August 2nd, and tickets go on general sale on Friday, August 4th. Full dates and ticket information can be found online at www.young-fathers.com slash tour. Article by Rebecca Newlands. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of August. Almost 900 prison staff assaulted by inmates in the last three years. An article written by Jane McLeod. Inmates have assaulted almost 900 staff working in Scotland's prisons in the last three years, figures show. Scottish Prison Service data reveals there were 265 assaults by inmates on prison staff last year, bringing the total for the period between 2020 and 2023 to 895. There were also 4,786 assaults by prisoners on fellow inmates over the three years, including 1,501 in 2022-2023. Numbers are down from 2019-2020, to when there were 3,009 assaults by prisoners on other inmates and 375 assaults on staff. That was said to be due to a number of factors, including a change in reporting practices in prisons and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, when a number of prisoners were freed early. Speaking about the figures released by the Scottish Prison Service under freedom of information laws, Lib Dem Justice spokesperson Liam MacArthur said, no one should go to work expecting to be assaulted. He added that overworked prison staff are finding themselves with less time to work with individuals, and are increasingly encountering unsafe situations inside Scotland's jails. With the figures also showing an increase in attacks on inmates by prisoners in Addywell Prison in West Lothian, where such incidents increased from 112 in 2020 to 2021 to 232 in 2022 to 2023, Mr MacArthur said, it's troubling to see that there's been a rise in assaults in the privately run Addywell Prison over the past two years. Prisons can be a pressure cooker, but the government must ensure that high safety standards are maintained across the entire prison sector. These staff need proper support if prisons are to be a safe space that breaks the cycle of re-offending. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, Assaults on prison staff and other prisoners are completely unacceptable. We have provided an extra £29 million this year to support the Scottish Prison Service to deliver a stable and secure prison system on top of the £97 million in capital funding that we're given to continue the modernisation of the prison estate to better meet the needs of staff and prisoners. A Scottish Prison Service spokesperson said, We take a zero-tolerance approach to violence and instances of alleged criminality are reported to Police Scotland. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of August. New Lanark wins Lifeline £2.3 million grant from Covid Fund. 
an article written by Gregor Young. The trust which runs Scotland's New Lanark UNESCO World Heritage Site has been awarded lifeline funding of £2.3 million for essential maintenance and repairs. The money has been awarded to New Lanark Trust by the National Heritage Memorial Fund as part of a COVID-19 Respond Fund to counter the impacts of the global pandemic. The tall ship Glen Lee, the Scottish Railway Preservation Society and the Wanlockhead Museum Trust will also benefit. Thanks to the funding from the fund, New Lanark Trust will be able to undertake maintenance of a number of Category A listed buildings on the site, which has been delayed because of the pandemic. The grant will also enable specific work on the roofs of the schoolhouse, nursery and new buildings and Long Row to take place. New Lanark was founded as a cotton-spinning village in 1785 by David Dale, who built cotton mills and housing for the mill workers. Today, the site is an active village community where people still live and work. Before the pandemic, New Lanark averaged 320,000 visitors a year, making it the leading paid visitor attraction in South Lanarkshire. With the help of this funding from the fund, the Trust hopes to see the level of visitors returning to the site, if not exceeding it. James Pow, chair of New Lanark Trust, said, This crucial grant is a significant step in New Lanark Trust's recovery from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. While the site fully reopened to visitors in May 2022, the legacy of the pandemic, which limited income and reduced operations, particularly around the maintenance of our world-renowned heritage assets, needs to be addressed. With this significant funding award, the Trust will be able to accelerate much-needed works to ensure the site continues to be conserved with integrity. Dr Simon Thurley, Chair of the National Heritage Memorial Fund, said, I'm delighted to announce our support for the future of New Lanark. The UNESCO World Heritage Site is an excellent example of how our heritage is not just the buildings and structures we can see, but also the stories they can tell us and the way they shape our lives and the places in which we live. We're extremely proud to have provided a lifeline for some of Scotland's incredible heritage sites and assets. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of August. No fly zone and more police as Edinburgh festivals and the tattoo start. An article written by Jane MacLeod. A no-fly zone will be in place above Edinburgh's Royal Mile every evening in August and increased police patrols will be on the streets as the International Arts Festivals and the Royal Military Tattoo get underway. Drones will not be permitted to fly in or around the Edinburgh Castle Esplanade, Castle Hill, the Lawn Market or Johnston Terrace from 4pm until midnight between August 3rd and August 26th to ensure the safety of performers and attendees. Police Scotland said foot patrols in Edinburgh city centre will also be increased in order to deter and detect criminal activity and to provide public reassurance. Additional resources have been called in from neighbouring divisions as well as specialist departments within the force. A mobile police station has been set up on the high street where members of the public can report any crime or suspicious activity or to seek information from officers. Chief Inspector Mark Hamilton said the Edinburgh festivals form the largest festival in the world and turn an international spotlight on the capital. 
As such, we must ensure that the policing response is adequate and proportionate during this time. From August the 1st, we will have increased foot patrols within the city centre and officers will provide a visible and reassuring presence to all of those who live, work and visit the area over the course of the festival and the fringe. Despite the population of Edinburgh doubling during the coming weeks, I'm confident the capital will remain a safe place for both tourists and local residents, but nonetheless I would ask that anyone who sees anything suspicious during their time within the area reports their concerns to police immediately. In addition, I'd encourage the public to follow our social media channels so they can stay up to date with all relevant crime prevention and safety information we will be publishing. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National, on Wednesday the 2nd of August. Opinion. Those who call Scotland home are welcome here. A column written by Alan Smith. Without citizens, there is no state, and one of the strengths of being an independent country is being able to make clear who is a citizen with all the rights and responsibilities that entails. It was reassuring, then, to see the Scottish Government publish its latest paper in the Building a New Scotland series, tackling this very issue. I was even more relieved to see it promote an approach which works for Scotland and all of us who live here. Those who remember 2014 and going through the white paper will note that not much has changed in this area. Arguably, why should it? Scotland has an abundance of space with an ageing population and a global diaspora. As such, of course it makes sense to make citizenship a much easier process compared to the UK government's hostile environment. As the paper summarised so succinctly, if you're already a British citizen, habitually resident in Scotland, you will be entitled to Scottish citizenship. If you were born in Scotland but living elsewhere, or you're living elsewhere but with a parent who was a British citizen born in Scotland, you will be entitled to citizenship. Or if you're living elsewhere, having previously lived in Scotland for at least 10 years, or 5 years as a child, with a pro rata calculation for young adults, then yes, you too can be a Scottish citizen. That's from day one. For those who wish to apply for naturalisation, the process is all quite straightforward too. British and Irish citizens will be able to apply after five years of residence. A child born in Scotland who is not automatically eligible for Scottish citizenship would be able to register as a Scottish citizen after five years of continuous residence in Scotland, or sooner if either of their parents became a Scottish citizen before that time. A person who was not born in Scotland but moved here as a child would be able to register as a Scottish citizen after five years of continuous residence in Scotland. EU citizens with settled status can naturalise as soon as they meet the residence requirement, which also includes the time before independence. I can go on, but I wouldn't want to spoil anyone's excitement by revealing the whole report. If you haven't read the paper or the others, I would highly encourage you to do so. So there will be many options for those who wish to do us the honour of coming here and making their lives in Scotland. Bringing people together is something to be celebrated, and it's why I'm proud that in Scotland voting is based on residence rather than nationality. This too will be kept when we're independent, because if you're here, you're one of us. Even better, what we're doing is not unusual when it comes to citizenship. 
In fact, it's the model in Ireland, our friend and neighbour. When the future paper on migration comes out, I very much look forward to seeing how we'll tap into the diaspora and encourage those who have Scottish ancestry to come back and see the land their forebears came from. On the subject of Ireland, it was good to see reassurance that an independent Scotland will pursue membership of the Common Travel Area. Such a measure will ensure that for those who frequently travel to see friends and family in Ireland or the rest of the UK, there won't be anything different just the colour of your passport, which you won't need to show at the border. The message is clear. In contrast to both the Tories and Labour's bitter obsession with immigration, we know the benefits of having more people come to Scotland and make it their home. Instead of using foreign nationals as pawns in negotiations, we are clear that those who call Scotland home are welcome here. After all, the point of independence is not to repeat the mistakes of the Union – but to build a better Scotland for all. A column written by Alan Smith. The National Politics on Wednesday the 2nd of August. Rishi Sunak's Scotland flight polluted more than eight UK homes. An article written by Hamish Morrison. Rishi Sunak's controversial trip to Scotland was worse for the environment than the carbon emission of eight UK households in an entire year, new analysis has found. The Prime Minister is under fire over a trip to Aberdeen this week, with new data from carbon accounting specialists showing a return flight from London to the city would pump the equivalent of 23.74 tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere. That's about the same emissions created by the gas and electricity generated by eight and a half UK households in one year, according to research by the company Carbon Responsible, which helps firms record their emissions. Attempting to justify his travel arrangements on Monday, the Prime Minister told the BBC it was a better use of his time to fly because it was faster than taking the train. A flight to Aberdeen from London is seven times faster than travelling by train, Carbon Responsible said, but 528 times more polluting. Matt Paver, the Chief Operating Officer of Carbon Responsible, said, At such a critical moment in the climate crisis, leaders must walk the walk, not fly a jet. It's no longer acceptable to follow the precedent set by those who came before. The urgent path to net zero requires us to reflect on old behaviours and change them. It sends a contradictory message when the journey taken to announce a carbon capture project emits the equivalent CO2 to emissions from eight and a half homes worth of annual electricity and gas usage. We can't expect ordinary people to make sacrifices that those in power wouldn't. That's why data like this is so important. It tells us exactly the impact of our choices and urges us to make better ones. If time efficiency is the issue here, We should be doing all we can to make alternative, greener routes viable for everyone, whether that's government officials or holidaymakers. The most important time consideration is, after all, how little time we have left to address the climate crisis. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Wednesday, the 2nd of August. School and nursery support staff vote in favour of strike. An article written by Adam Robertson. 
Support staff at schools and nurseries across almost a third of Scotland's local authorities have voted to strike in a pay dispute. GMB Scotland members in cleaning, janitorial, catering and people support in 10 councils across the country have backed industrial action. The local authority areas involved are Aberdeen, Clackmanninshire, the Western Isles, Dundee, Eastern Bartonshire, Falkirk, Glasgow, Orkney, Renfrewshire and South Ayrshire. The union said strikes will take place unless a breakthrough comes at last-ditch talks with council umbrella body COSLA today. More than 8,000 members from the around 21,000 workers the union represents in these areas voted for industrial action. The ballot came after 94% of the members rejected the council's offer of a 5.5% in-year pay rise. Meanwhile, council parking staff will walk out in Glasgow to support the pay claim this week, with the strike threatening to disrupt the UCI World Cycling Championships, which starts in Scotland tomorrow. Unions claim the strike of their members in parking services tomorrow and on Friday could cause problems for the 10-day event, claiming illegally parked cars could hamper cyclists and obstruct road races. GMB Scotland Senior Organiser for Public Services, Keir Greenaway, said it's no surprise that our members are prepared to strike rather than accept an offer that is less than last year, despite the cost of living being even higher. Our members have now spoken and COSLA should listen and arrive tomorrow with a fair offer and seize what is the final opportunity to avert industrial action. Whether it's our members voting to strike in schools or those in parking who will take action within days, council workers are sick of being overworked and undervalued. It's time for political leaders to show some leadership. A COSLA spokesperson said, The reality of the situation is that as employers, council leaders have made a strong offer to the workforce. A strong offer which clearly illustrates the value councils place on their workforce – and it compares well to other sectors. It recognises the cost of living pressures on our workforce, and critically, it seeks to protect jobs and services. While the offer value in year is 5.5%, the average uplift on salaries going into the next financial year is 7%. Those on the Scottish local government living wage would get 9.12%, and those at higher grades, where councils are experiencing severe recruitment challenges, would see 6.05%. He said the offer commits to working with unions to develop a roadmap to a Scottish local government living wage of £15 an hour, up from the £11.84 in the proposal and the current rate of £10.83. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of August. Two charged after allegedly tampering with parcels on a Royal Mail train. An article written by Laura Patterson. Two teenagers have been charged after allegedly tampering with parcels on a Royal Mail train. British Transport Police were called out at 1.42am on Tuesday morning following reports two men had gained access to a Royal Mail train at Lockerbie. The men were said to have damaged signalling equipment in the process. Police said nothing is thought to have been stolen, but a number of parcels appear to have been interfered with. A British Transport Police spokesman said, Officers attended and a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old were located in a carriage and arrested. 
At this stage, it's not believed anything was stolen, but a number of parcels in the carriage had been interfered with. Both young men have been charged with malicious mischief, theft and threatening and abusive behaviour. The force said inquiries are ongoing and anyone with information about the incident should contact them. An article written by Laura Patterson. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of August 2023, from the news section. BBC throws out complaint over Fiona Bruce's SNP off the rails claim. Article by Xander Eliards. The BBC has dismissed a complaint against Fiona Bruce after she claimed the SNP had gone off the rails during the opening segment of an edition of Question Time. Bruce came under fire for unacceptable framing and editorialising in the May 18th broadcast, which was filmed in Fort William. She had introduced the BBC show by saying, Tonight, Question Time is in Scotland for the first time since the SNP came off the rails in such spectacular fashion. Following Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and the arrest of high-profile SNP officials in the course of a police investigation into party finances, the audience here in Fort William want to know what it all means for Scotland and for the UK. The BBC's Executive Complaints Unit, ECU, reported on August 3rd on its investigation into a complaint raised by Bruce's framing of the SNP situation. The ECU said, A viewer complained that Fiona Bruce lacked impartiality in her handling of the panellists, in particular in her ascension that the SNP had come off the rails since the programme last visited Scotland, which she also considered to be inaccurate. The unit considered whether the programme met BBC standards on due accuracy and impartiality and judged that it had done so. Dismissing the complaint, the ECU ruled that Bristie's comment on the SNP had been a professional judgement rooted in evidence and, as such, was covered by the BBC's editorial guidelines. It said, The BBC editorial guidelines allow presenters, reporters and correspondents to provide professional judgments rooted in evidence. In the ECU's view, Fiona Bruce's comment about the SNP fell into that category and noted the SNP itself had publicly acknowledged the severity of the difficulties it faced in terms arguably stronger than those used on the programme. Overall, the ECU considered all sides in the debate that evening were fairly challenged and, if it appeared the SNP were under particular scrutiny, this was as a result of their position as the Scottish Government and of recent events, rather than an indication of bias by the presenter or the BBC. The news comes from complaints, reports which are made to BBC, made public on the BBC's website every two weeks. In the past, the BBC has cleared Bruce amid allegations of pro-conservative bias on question time. More recently, the ECU dismissed a complaint about a map of the UK which did not include Orkney or Shetland, claiming it could find no inaccuracy. And that article was by Xander Eliards. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of August 2023, from the news section, Mel Stride encourages over 50s to embrace delivery jobs. Article by Laura Pollock. The Working Pension Secretary has suggested that over 50s should break away from age-related job stereotypes and embrace a wider range of career opportunities like delivering takeaways. Melstry's comments came during a visit to the London headquarters of food delivery firm Deliveroo, 
which has recorded a 62% increase in riders aged over 50 since 2021. In an interview with the Times during his visit to the food delivery company, Stride was asked if the over 50s should apply for jobs traditionally seen as being for young people. He said, There are loads of great opportunities out there for people and of course, it's good for people to consider options they might not have otherwise thought of. Stride said of firms like Deliveroo, What we're seeing here is the ability to log on and off any time you like, no requirement to have to do a certain number of hours over a certain period of time, which is driving huge opportunities. From an employer's point of view, in a tight labour market, it's absolutely essential if you want to access all the available talent that you provide as flexible an offer as you can. Stride has in the past spoken about how the flexible working is the way forward and not just for the over 50s, but often for those who have disabilities. On the recently introduced digital midlife MOTs, which are designed to help older workers with financial planning, health guidance and career skills, Stride told the newspaper, You really do need to sensibly stop, take where you are in life and assess whether, for example, you've got enough money to get you through with the kind of lifestyle and living standards that you're expecting. We tend to think everything is going to continue roughly as it is and you'll always be able to find a job later on in life. I think it's always valuable just to take stock every now and again and have a look at that. According to the Cabinet Minister, the responsibility of creating an inclusive work environment for older employees should fall on employers. He said, I think most people find it deeply unattractive to go and work for an employer that's all about politics and all that kind of stuff. It has to be a sensible balance and I think older people have generally had enough life experience to roll with these kind of things anyway. As for his own career plans, Mr Stride, 61, expressed his commitment to serving his current role and said he has no intention of retiring early. He said, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. Of course, as we know in politics, nothing is certain, so who knows where I'll be in many years' time? but I very much hope and aspire to be continuing to do this job because it's the greatest job in the world. And the article was by Laura Pollock. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of August 2023, from the news section, Fox Club released back into wild after being discovered inside Bath. Report by Ross Hunter. A Fox Club discovered in the bath of an Edinburgh home has been rescued. After the resident of a house in Ormondale Terrace near Murrayfield returned home on Tuesday, they discovered the canine hunkered down in their bath after getting it through an open door earlier in the day. The Scottish SPCA was then called and managed to safely rescue the animal and return it to the wild. Catherine Atherton, an animal rescue officer for the SSPCA, said, The resident of the house got a bit of a shock when they discovered the fox cub in the bath. They think the animal must have sneaked in through an open door at some point during the day, but wasn't sure when. Thankfully, the cub was unhurt, just a bit frightened. We were able to release the cub back into the wild straight away in the vicinity of the fox den we think they came from. People are urged to call the Scottish SPCA or seek advice on the charity's website if they discover an animal in distress within their home. And that report was by Ross Hunter. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of August 2023, from the news section, exclusive. 
Fury as unauthorised obstructions appear in River Tay by Rose Hunter. Unauthorised structures which appeared in the River Tay have resulted in a long-standing sports facility losing its lease. Earlier this week, the Scottish Canoe Association, SEA, reported that numerous man-made barriers had appeared in the Grand Tully Rapids in Perthshire, which has been a popular spot for canoeing and whitewater rafting for decades. There are several safety concerns based on the relocation, the rough concrete and stones that have been used, the unknown quality of construction and the fact that they are new and unexpected, said the SEA in a blog post. Depending on the river level, some of them may be beneath the water. Anyone descending the Tay or just paddling at Grand Tully is advised to exercise extreme caution in the rapid now that it has been changed. Police Scotland, SEPA, Nature Scotland and Perth and Kinross Council are in the process of investigating. Unauthorised works and rivers are prohibited and the SEA reminds everyone of this. Now, the lease for the site has been terminated with immediate effect, despite the barriers appearing to be the work of an individual working independently from the SEA. The SEA said, Even though it is recognised by all concerns that the SEA, as an organisation, had no knowledge of and played no part in the construction of these new structures, the act of constructing these barriers slash dams in the river has been determined to be an egregious breach of the terms of the site lease, which has consequently been terminated with immediate effect. The SEA deeply regrets the end of the historic lease and the consequent loss of use of the permanently available slalom infrastructure that it has enabled over many years. Jonathan S. Griddle, a recreational canoeist, told the National that the community surrounding the sport had been reeling at the news. People are pretty aghast and shocked, at least within the circles I move in, he said. It shows complete disrespect for the owner of the site. This is an important area for the natural world. He added, It's a lot of work for someone to do, but it's my understanding that it's an individual who is known within the Slaloman community. I can't work out what they were expecting to achieve from it, but obviously they thought they were somehow creating a better site for paddling on. However, this new barrier is now an active danger to people paddling on the site. It's a big loss to canoe slalom. I've run slalom at that site before and we've run major events there. That's not going to happen now. Indeed, the British Canoeing Slalom Committee has already announced that two slalom events planned at the Grand Tully Rapids at the end of August cannot now go ahead. The SEA said that the termination of the lease means that the slalom infrastructure will now be dismantled and placed into storage, with notices set to appear informing paddlers of the situation. And that article was an exclusive by Ross Hunter. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of August 2023, from the news section, Ian Livingston, Sooner SNP investigation ends, the better. By Adam Robertson. The outgoing Chief Constable of Police Scotland has said the sooner the investigation into SNP finances is over, the better. Speaking to the BBC, Serene Livingston said the two-year-long investigation was entirely legitimate. Over the course of the investigation, Nicola Sturgeon, Peter Morell and Colin Beattie have all been arrested and released without charge. After her release, Sturgeon released a statement in which she said she was certain that she had done nothing wrong. Livingston said, We are duty-bound to investigate matters if they are reported to us. 
our action and our investigation is in the interest of everybody involved because it will clarify facts and deal with evidence and facts as opposed to rumour and innuendo. So, the sooner this investigation is concluded, the better for everyone involved. However, Livingston did not put a timescale on when the investigation would conclude. It has to take its course. We will continue to work very closely with independent prosecutors and matters will progress in due course, he said. Police first confirmed they were investigating complaints made around donations to the SNP in July 2021. We previously revealed how the total cost of the probe into party finances exceeds the allegedly missing amount which is under investigation. It has been reported that £600,000 went missing from party coffers. At the end of July, the Daily Record reported that detectives had not reported any cases for prosecution. In an article was by Adam Robertson. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Coon Review and tell your friends about our service.